0: Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Thanks to Chris and worship team for leading us. Um, I'm excited to continue our series, 30 Days to Live. As we kick off the new year, I think it's a good time to reflect on the types of lives we're living, whether they're in line kind of with our goals that we have set out, uh, God's goals for our lives. I'm curious, uh, how many of you set uh, New Year's resolutions this year? Raise your hand nice and high. New Year's resolutions. Okay, and how many of you have broken your New Year's resolutions already? Got a couple of honest people. Um, I haven't started mine yet, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll get there. I got New Year's resolutions for, uh, you know, I, I don't like to play into the hype New Year's resolutions. I, I set resolutions in February. Uh, um, yeah, we are, we're starting week three here this morning, uh, the writing is on the wall. That's the, that's the name of the, the sermon title uh, this morning. Uh, and I'll explain a little bit of what that means. But this series is about living life without regret. I know when Lisa and I decided to get life insurance, uh, as parents we thought that would be a good idea, you know, getting some life insurance. And we went through that process. And when you go through the process of getting life insurance, you get a proof of life uh, you, you, you have to do some proof-of-life tests, right? So you get medical tests and all that kind of stuff, right? To see if you're truly living. And that, that just makes me scratch my head a little bit. A proof-of-life test. And I think many of us, we, we're living life, but it's actually more existence than life. They should call it a proof-of-existence test because would you agree that you can live, uh, you, you can exist, but you're not necessarily truly living? Would you agree with that? And many of us exist, but we're not truly living. And so we got a proof of existence test. Uh, But I wonder if we took a proof of life test. If we were actually living a full uh, life, how many of us would pass that test? You know, in the Bible, Jesus says, I came to give life in all of its fullness. And I've talked about this a a number of times. But when when Jesus uses the word life uh, in that context, he uses the word zoe. Can everybody say Zoe. And Zoe means uh, this full, uh, satisfying, meaningful, purposeful life uh, in, in the Greek language. And the, the another word for life uh, that Jesus intentionally does not use is the word bios, where we get the word biology from. And that word means existence. You got a pulse. You are breathing. You exist. How many of us live, are living a bios life, we're existing, we're going through the motions, we have a pulse, we're breathing, but yet if we were asked, give me a proof of life, show me that you're living a zoe life, how many of us would pass that test, that we're living the full life that God intended for us to live? Because Jesus came that so we may have zoe life, life in all of its fullness, with all of its purpose. We were created for a reason. We were put on this earth for a reason. And so there's something about 30 days to live when we come face to face with the fragility and brevity of our own life. We start to ask questions around Zoe versus bios life, living versus, versus existence. How can we move from just existing to living the life that God intended? When you look at different cultures, Eastern culture and Western culture, you'll see different Schools of Thought and Belief, Belief Systems. What we believe about the future impacts how we live today. In the Eastern culture, they have a much more cyclical understanding of time. And I think this is kind of... uh, categorized well in Hindu belief of reincarnation that, uh, that you don't just live one life, but you live multiple lives. So you, we live in this cycle, and depending how you live in this life uh, will impact the way that you live in the next life. So Hindus who believe in reincarnation are typically not in a hurry. Many, may, maybe some of you who, who have, have friends with that belief system can, can, can relate to that. You know, sometimes I think of the Spanish culture. Uh, if you spend time in El Salvador, or Mexico, and you know, say, what time is lunch? Oh, around the middle of the day-ish, and you show up, and lunch is a three- or four-hour event. Right? So there's a different understanding of time. You now, some of you complain when church service goes too long. Have you ever been to a Latin church service? <laughs> Start in the afternoon, you go into the evening, and it just goes and goes and goes. But I think the, the Hindu belief system gives us a, a good picture of what I'm talking about here. The, the cyclical life. They don't necessarily believe in one life. They believe in multiple lives and that impacts the way they live this life. The Greeks believed that each person only had one life to live and because of this they had a greater sense of urgency. And if you look at their kind of stories uh, you know, in, in mythology and in Greek gods you, you'll see uh, heroic figures that conquered different things and, 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 and they made... An impact in this life because they had this, this finite understanding of existence. You have a greater sense of determination and even desperation to accomplish something meaningful if you believe that you have one life to live. And I'm convinced that what we do in this life matters. And so I, I probably tend to lean towards the Greek uh, mindset this belief that we, we don't have a do over, we, we don't get a redo on this life. I enjoy playing golf. Um, I don't know how many of you guys enjoy playing golf, uh, you know, there's this quote that a golf is a long walk ruined, uh, and I I used to feel that way, but I'm a pretty pretty good, com- I'm a competitive person, and uh, and so I golfed once or twice a year with family members, or sometimes, you know, there's a pastor's group that goes out golfs once a year at a tournament, and I was consistently the worst golfer on my team. Best ball tournament, I, I remember one year, uh, we had three good golfers, we had to use, you had to use three drives in this best ball tournament, and I was on hole fifteen, and we hadn't used any of my drives yet, and and the pressure was just too much. I hear Kel laughing. I think Kel was on that team. Where did you get? And and I just I, I still couldn't hit the I couldn't hit the drive under the pressure, and uh, and I'm I'm pretty sure I cost our team uh, five or six spots uh, in the rankings. And I. Because I'm competitive, I decided I'm going to get golf lessons. And, and so that next year, I'm like, you know, I, I booked golf lessons with a, with a golf pro, and I tried to uh, get an effort to go out and hit the driving range and golf more. And I think I golfed like, you know, 18 to 20 rounds a year, which was, a, which was a significant for me, who was only golfing once or twice a year. And then I realized I can't afford to play golf. Uh, and so <laughs> I've since kind of retired from my golfing career. I, I do it a few times a year. But I love mulligans. You know, when, when, and, and because I'm competitive, I like to set the rules straight before the game starts. So uh, I just want to make sure we're all playing by the same rules so that there's winners and losers, but I need mulligans. So let's, let's just establish how many mulligans I'm allowed to use. When I go golf with my family, and my older brother's a really great golfer, my younger brother's a terrible golfer. Um, I tried to find a clip of his golf swing, and it's absolutely horrendous. Um, and, uh, and so my goal when I go golfing with my dad and my brothers is just don't get beat by my younger brother. I've never beat my older brother, but my goal is not to get beat by my younger brother. So a couple summers ago, we were, we were out golfing, and, uh, and it was tight, and I could, I could feel like my blood boiling, like my younger brother was like right there with me. And, uh, and so there was a couple of you know, times where I you know, hit the ball, and it was kind of behind the tree, and I, you know, you, you know, we weren't allowing go- mulligans because we just needed to make sure that this was for real. Like we, we needed to rank... Uh, the everybody. So, uh, you know, I give it a little kind of push, you know, let's say it was like hole 10 or something, right? I just kind of push it out from behind the tree, a little better line, you know, there's a couple times that I did that during the game, and I ended up beating my brother by a couple of strokes in that game. And we added up the scores at the end, and I said, you know, here's my score, so it was ninety, you know, two or something, and, and my brother was at like 94, 95, and I, I said, Whoa, I was close. And he says, yeah, did you count that, uh, you know, on hole 10 where you moved that ball uh, away from the tree in hole 13 when you did this? And, and he had kind of kept a tally throughout the whole game. Uh, he watches me like an eagle when we play. Anyways, I can't do golf without, without having mulligans. And, uh, and I think sometimes we treat life that way. Like, we're just going to kind of go through... And if I need a do-over, I need to do a correction here, and I'm going to redo that whole... And the reality is that none of us get a mulligan on this life. No one gets to live your life for you. You have to live your life. And when you come before Jesus at the end of your life, you're not going to say, I just need a mulligan. You now, Thankfully, Jesus already knew we needed a mulligan, and that's why he, he came to earth. So we live with grace we live with hope uh, because Jesus is our mulligan. But in light of that, Jesus says, now, now play the game. No one's going to play it for you. And I think at the intersection, I don't know how we got to that point. Uh, the intersection of Western thought and Eastern thought, uh, we, we, you have this, we have one life to live in the sense of urgency that the Western world, the Greeks had, and, but the cyclical thought that, that we were eternal beings that the, the Eastern uh, mindset has. And in the middle, at the intersection, I believe you have the Hebrew mindset who believed in one God and one life to live, but also had uh, an awareness of our eternal purpose. This is the beautiful tension, I think, of the Christian tradition, is that it has a sense of urgency today. You have one life to live, but it's not doom and gloom because your one life has eternal significance. You were created as an eternal being, but you get one life to live. And so I think the invitation for all of us is to live with a sense of urgency today, recognizing that it's not doom and gloom, that it's not just one life to live and then you're done, but our life has an impact that goes on for eternity. And so can we have an understanding of eternity and an understanding of urgency at the same time? I believe that's what Jesus invites us to when he talks about living a full life, that this is the the culture and the context, the belief system that he's inviting us to take on. Now, this idea of the writing on the wall, it's a phrase that is sometimes used in our culture. The writing's on the wall. What this means is it's going to happen. And it's usually a bad news kind of saying. You know, the writing's on the wall. You know, their job's going to be done soon. The writing's on the wall. That phrase actually comes from uh, the Bible, as many phrases do. It's taken from a story in scripture that has been popularized, The phrase has been popularized. And the story comes from the book of Daniel. And, and I thought about this when we were doing the Daniel series a couple of series ago, Strangers in a Strange Land. I uh, just didn't have time to get into it in that series, but I, I think it fits really well here. And so in the story of Daniel, you have Daniel and his friends that are in, uh, that are in Babylon. And we talked about the Babylonian mindset in that series. And I'll just quickly summarize that to say, the Babylonian mindset is all about you, all about me, all about the individual in your kingdom, what you feel, what you believe, living comfortable, living it up right here and now. And so that's the Babylonian culture that David, or Daniel and his friends are in. Daniel was uh, under a number of rulers, I think three rulers in the book of Daniel. Uh, One of those rulers is Belshazzar. Belshazzar, there we go. Uh, Everybody say Belshazzar, because I need the practice. Belshazzar. And this is uh, a portion from that story in Daniel 5. You can read read this story in its fullness. So, Belshazzar has this dream, or he sees this vision of a hand that's writing on the wall, and this hand writes uh, some language that he does not understand. And Daniel is asked to interpret the dream because Daniel had shown that he was reliable in interpreting dreams up until this point in the story. So Daniel says, you are his successor, and he's referring to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the, you know, that was all about himself, all about his own kingdom. You are in that lineage. You are functioning like Nebuchadnezzar, thinking it's all about you. O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this, yet you have not humbled yourself. In light of what you saw in Nebuchadnezzar, you did not even learn from his story, his mistakes. You've lived actually the same way. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have... And have had these cups from his temple brought before you. It's referring to a point of the story earlier. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message, and this message that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. Everybody say numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. Everybody say weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. And Parson means divided. Can you say divided? Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It has been given to your enemies. And I want to focus this morning on these three words. We don't know uh, the language of these three words, but we know that Daniel interpreted them for us. And Mene, and it said twice. And, and in. In Scripture, usually when things are repeated, it's kind of like an exclamation mark in our language. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Many, many. This is important. Your days are numbered. God has numbered your days. This has been our focus in the series. How does the reality that God has numbered our days impact the way we live today? bit of a theme, verse, and prayer. Psalm 39, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. This was written by David, who was known after, as a man after God's own heart. And maybe the difference fundamentally between David and Belshazzar, because David made lots of mistakes in his life, if you know the story of David, is that David at least had an awareness that he had one life to live and that he was accountable to how he lived that life. It had eternal implications on his kingdom and beyond. Belshazzar did not live in that same way. Last week we looked at the question, what do you want? And I hope you've taken time to reflect on that over the course of the series. What kind of life do you want to live? Even as you're participating in the 21 days of prayer and fasting with us, what has God been showing you about the the life that he's calling you to live? I had to answer this question five or six times years ago in an assignment when I, was, when I was working on my master's degree, and it was asked of me personally in one of my classes, you know, what, is, what do you want, man? What's, what's your vision for your life, for your family, for your vocation? And so I, I had to come out with these statements. I, I spent kind of weeks just rewriting and tweaking and, uh, and seeking the Lord on kind of how he wired me, what he was calling me to do. Um, I've never shared these before uh, outside of my wife, um, and I was debating whether or not to share them, but I thought, you know what, share them, because uh, I, think, I think God is in some ways asking us the same question. What do you want? What type of life do you want me to li- want to live in? And these are some of the statements I made regarding some of the areas of my life. First statement was a bit of a purpose statement. I, I exist to grow in an intimate relationship with God the Father, to live for my identity, Identity as his child in everything I say and do, and to follow his lead, removing barriers and building bridges so that others may come to know him and do the same. So I felt like that was a bit of a, a purpose statement for myself, a bit of a spiritual vision for myself. I, you know, it was kind of like the Church I See campaign, if you're familiar with that campaign that we did, uh, except I did it for myself. Uh, I see a life that walks in step with the Holy Spirit from this attentive. Attentiveness to the Spirit of God flow, love, grace, and courage. I see an intimacy with Christ that leads to passion for Christ. You'll recognize that phrase. Authority and humility are are hand in hand, anchored in the identity of sonship and the grace necessary for that adoption. I see integrity and faithfulness with the small responsibilities and private aspects of my life, as well as the large responsibilities and public aspects of my life. About my, about my marriage, I said, I, "I see a husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her." Lisa who's the name of my name, of my wife um, Lisa is encouraged and empowered to live out her unique calling and I see in our life laughter and adventure our marriage is a place where we experience and reflect the grace forgiveness love and freedom of Christ to each other we are an interdependent team that views our opposite personalities and if you know us you know we're, how opposite we are opposite personalities and gift things as complementary for the mission god has called us to our primary ministry responsibility after loving god and loving one another is to raise three men who are unrelenting disciples of Jesus Christ parental vision i says about What I see for myself as a parent, I see three warriors equipped to build God's kingdom, each of them with different gifts, passions, and abilities that have been called out of them, mentored in them, and intentionally released through them for the kingdom of God. I see history makers who have built their lives and identities on the unshakable foundation of Jesus Christ. I see three young men who courageously follow the voice of God. They also increasingly reflect their heavenly father's heart despite how their earthly father may have misrepresented that to them. And then a bit of a vocational vision as a pastor. I I see a translator that consistently pursues fluency with the heart of God and seeks to communicate his heart and truth to the culture in which he finds himself. I see someone who is courageous and gentle to speak the things that the Lord has whispered in his ear. Where the enemy has sought to kill, steal, and destroy, he will speak life, equip, and restore. I see a bridge builder that guides others to Jesus. I see an influencer who is first a follower humbly inviting others to a journey that he himself is on. I see a shepherd who fights persistently for the intergenerational unity in the bride of Christ and views mission as the aligning force. So this was a, a personal project that I did, like I said, maybe half a dozen years ago or a little less. And, and the reason I share that is because I had to answer that question a number of years ago, what do I want? What type of life do I want to live? If, if I were to have other people describe me how closely would it be related to what I stated? Is my life in alignment with that? Uh, even when I share that, I feel you know, a little bit self-conscious about sharing that because you know, once it's out there, now other people can judge you based on what you said you wanted to be. But that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to have a measuring stick for yourself. And if each of you did this, yours would, yours would be different. And, and I would invite you, maybe in the next couple of weeks, maybe this week, this is a good exercise for you. Can you write down... That question: What do you want? Because that is going to dictate how we live our current life. The word "tekel" keep thinking it sounds like "tickle" means numbered, and here's the reality: that your life and my life will be weighed. It'll be weighed. It'll be measured. And that makes me a little nervous, almost like looking at the weigh scale in the morning and deciding, do I really want to step on that? Some of you can attest to that. I hate it. I hate stepping on that thing. But at the end of our lives, we're going to be weighed. And and this morning, I think I want to focus on three things, three things that I think will be weighed around. The first is how I use my time will be weighed. And how you use your time will be weighed. If we lived in the truth that we have a finite amount of time, a limited number of days, then we would all make better decisions on how we use our time. A couple of, or last week we asked the question, if you had 30 days to live, what would you stop doing and what would you start doing? And part of the reason I went back to my personal vision statements is because of a conviction that I had that the Holy Spirit was giving me a couple of months ago that the way I was using my time was not aligning with the statements and the goals that I had set out that I believed that God was calling me to live out. I had reprioritized my life in a way that wasn't in alignment with that. And so, you know, maybe I was watching a little bit too much Netflix, some binge watching, a little bit of The Office, You know those, uh, do any of you get the report on your iPhone that that tells you how much screen time you use each week? Holy cow, that is, uh, that's depressing. Uh, I started realizing how much time I was wasting scrolling. Many of you spend hours just scrolling every day, scrolling up your phone. You don't even know what you're looking for. It's just like, I just want to know what else is new, what else is happening. I just... uh, um, and then you, you go down a rabbit trail. You know, so whether it's TV, video games, scrolling on your phone, how much time do we waste? And this, this sand, I think, represents to me all the things that we do that are unimportant and how much time it actually takes. And when you get weighed at the end of your life on how you use your time, is this really the stuff you want to be reporting to Jesus about? You know, and then we, then we got stuff that is, you know, pretty important. Like, your, your job's pretty important, right? Your hobbies, you know, I think hobbies are important. You know, hobbies help me kind of keep sane and uh, getting physical activity. You know, like I said, what, <laughs> maybe it's not golfing. Uh, but it might be, you know, riding a bike, playing my guitar. Those are important things, I think. But then we have the most important things. I think these are the types of things that I talked about uh, in my calling statement. You we know, try and fit God in there, maybe our family, and our close friends, and we, we realize pretty quickly that we don't have enough room for the big rocks in our life. Uh, and and I, I hit a point a couple months ago where I was just, I felt like I was burning at at both ends. And the things that were most important to me, I find I was spending the least amount of time on. I was spending the least amount of time on my marriage. I was spending the least amount of time uh, just with my kids, just being with my kids. I was spending almost zero time with, with those friendships that were critical and important to me. And uh, you know, I, I got together with a friend one night, and he was like, man, I haven't hung out with you in like six or seven months. And I said, I don't think I've hung out with anybody in six or seven months. And I was filling my jar with the things that really don't matter at the end of the day. There's a biblical principle that talks about putting first things first. And I've talked about that before, but uh, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God. If you seek first the kingdom of God, all of these things will be added to you. Are you putting first things first in your life? Your relationship with God, your relationship with your kids. Your relationship with your spouse. When you set your calendar, do you put those things first in your calendar? And like I said, I think there's other important things that aren't aren't critical things, you know, but they're important for your well-being. Are you leaving room in your life to do those things? I actually made a conscious effort uh, after one of my New Year's resolutions was to to play guitar more because I wasn't playing guitar at all and that's one of the ways that I kind of recharge. And so I set up all my guitar stuff in her living room. Lisa hates it. Um, Actually, no, I shouldn't say that. She doesn't. I I told her, my goal is to play guitar more and she was like, that is good. That's good for you. Um, And then we got all this other stuff. See if we can do this with the broken hand. And I believe this reflects this this biblical principle that you need to orient your life around the things that matter most to you, that matter most to God. Seek first his kingdom above all else, above all else. And all these other things will be added to you and he will give you everything you need. The secret of focusing on first things is maintaining order and keeping our priorities straight. Our perspective on order determines our capacity. I think many of you, if you're like me, will say, I don't have any capacity left. And often that's because we've, we've put last things first. We've ran out of capacity. And we're overwhelmed because we know that the big rocks in our life aren't getting the attention that they deserve. What happens when we put the rocks first? I think the things that don't matter, matter less. Jesus is saying here that more will happen, more will get done when we put him first in our lives. When we keep order in our daily lives, then we keep our priorities clear and order communicates priority. Whatever we put in first place becomes the organizing principle for the other parts of our lives. The reason I had to write out those vision statements for myself is because I had to have something in front of me that told me what my priorities were in my life. And at times of reflection, I can go back to it and I've, I, got, I go back to it over and over again. And I say, Is my life lining up with this? No? Yes? It's a checkpoint, it becomes a guiding principle, an organizing principle. And God knew that we have a tendency to put last things first. And so He gave us safeguards in your life and my life to ensure that first things are first. It's not a pop quiz. You're not going to get to the end of your life and be like, oh, I had no idea that that was what was important. Jesus told you what was important. He actually, he actually gave you safeguards to ensure that it stays important. The safeguard for your time is the Sabbath. God gave us the Sabbath to safeguard how we use our time. If I ignore Sabbath, I can almost guarantee you that I will not put the rocks first in my jar. When is your Sabbath? Do you actually take a day a week to stop working, to stop performing, to stop trying to succeed, to stop competing, to just be? You'll see this is where the one and the infinite meet. Because God says, You got one life to live, live it for six days, work hard, but don't do seven days, and then another seven, and then another seven, because you forget that you're an eternal being. God, who's an eternal being, set the tone for this. Even in the creation story, we see that God took a rest. You know, why would God need rest? God is modeling for us what it means to live with urgency and purpose, but yet with mindfulness uh, in light of eternity. Do you practice Sabbath? Do you take a day, with those that are closest to you, do you take a day to recharge, to focus on those three or four big rocks in your life, Because there's a few things in your life that you can do that nobody else can do, and there's a few relationships in your life that you have that nobody else has. I'm the only husband that Lisa has, I'm the only dad that my kids have. Sabbath is a reorientation around my life as a son of God and the first priorities that He's given me in my life. What does that Sabbath look like? There's this principle of first fruits, giving God first in our lives, we see throughout Scripture. Give Him the beginning of your week. Give them the beginning of your day. This is why I talk about journaling so much in the, in the morning. You can live with a sense of urgency and purpose if you get every, up every day, day and you give them a portion of that day and say, God, how do you want me to live today? Remind me of the priorities that you've given me today. That time with the Lord in the morning is so important. Time at the beginning of every day and one day a week God has given us those things as a safeguard for a time. Jesus modeled it for us as well. In in Mark 2, 27, it says, Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, and not people meet the requirements of the Sabbath. And this is a popular verse when we talk about the Sabbath. And often people take us, well, the Sabbath is for me. So I cannot do it if I don't want to. That's true. You don't have to do it. But God gave it for you to do. You know, what Jesus is saying here is not that the Sabbath is optional, He's saying that the purpose of the Sabbath is actually for you. Why would you ignore something that's for you? Why would you ignore something that God gave you to put in place so that you can live your life with purpose and meaning and in the proper orientation around what's the most important thing that he created you for? The Sabbath joins the one and the infinite. The urgency with the eternal. Don't ignore it. I think the, the second thing that we get measured on is how I use my treasure will be weighed. How I use my treasure will be weighed. I grew up in a small town in Manitoba in the 80s, and there used to be this thing called layaway. How many of you guys are old enough to remember layaway? Okay. How many of you guys have no idea what layaway is? Put up your hand nice and high. You have no idea what layaway is. Okay. This This will be great. This will be educational for you. Layaway... So get this, you would put something on hold at a store until you paid for it. (laughs) So let me just be very clear here, you actually wouldn't possess or own something, it wouldn't be in your possession until it was paid for. This, This is like mind boggling. You know, we do the opposite of layaway today. I won't pay for it today, I'll put it all in my credit card and I'll own it, and I'll enjoy it. Why did we ever get away, of, get away from layaway? Maybe it's because we fell in love with stuff so much that we could imagine our lives without it. We, we, we couldn't bear to wait for something when we could have it now. now. Jesus tells a story in Luke 12, really about this idea, and I, I won't read the whole thing now in light of time. But Jesus warns this person to beware of greed and tells a story of a, of a man who just was, was harvesting crops and he just built bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns because he just wanted to get everything he could possibly get. And then he ends the story with, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. We are a fool. We are fools to spend so much of our life acquiring wealth and stuff and ignore a relationship with God. My bet is that if you had 30 days to live, you would look at all the stuff in your possession and you would say, that stuff is meaningless to me. There would be no meaning in it because you knew that you could not take it with you into the presence of Jesus. You had to leave it behind. A person is a fool Who's a fool here? I'm a fool. A person is a fool to store up earthly wealth and neglect the relationship with God. To fill their jar with sand when that sand is going to do nothing for you. Philippians, Paul says this, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as, everybody say, garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. This word garbage, that is like a nice, appropriate church translation, which is great because we read the Bible in the church, but that's not actually what the word says. This word, and I can't even use the word in, in church here, uh, it means poop. It means dung. You know, I, I, I was driving home the other night, and this guy was walking a dog, and, and he, he laid a poop right on my driveway, right on my sidewalk. And I had my blinker on. I was turning into my driveway, and the guy just kept going. I was like, what? I like honk my horn. My kids are in the car, they're like, Dad, what are you doing? I get out of my car, I'm like, hey! Are you going to clean that crap up? That's what I said. Because I don't want it. It's useless to me. Why would I want your dog poop on my driveway? Take it. He's like, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Was, uh, yeah, sorry. I, I, like, I, I couldn't believe the guy. I was, like, I was like, trying to turn into my driveway. He's like, I'll just leave it. It's like I got headlights, like just spotlighting the poop on my driveway. (laughs) It's like maybe he didn't notice. I was like, no, it's like. What use is it? Take it with you. I don't want it. Paul is saying the stuff you have in your possession is dog crap. And if you're offended by that, I'm I'm like, you know the word that probably translates the best. Dog blank, bull blank, fill in the blank. (laughs) Paul's saying that's what the stuff in your life is. What use is it to you? You Many of us just got like dog poo just like piling up in our house and we're like, this is so awesome, this is so valuable. Paul's saying it has no value, no value. Proverbs 3 verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce, then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine and we think, that's great, I'll honor God with my wealth and everything and then he'll fill up my barns and then I'll be good, no, 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 you see, th- th- this is cyclical. It gives you more and then you honor him with more and then he gives you more and then you honor him with more. It's like you don't ever stop honoring God with your wealth. Sometimes we think, it's a one and done. Okay, I'll honor God with this bit, and then when he blesses me, then I can keep it. No, the reason he blessed you was to keep honoring him with it. So again, it's not a pop quiz. God gave you a safeguard to guard your heart around your wealth and your materials. God gave us the tithe. Everybody say the tithe. To safeguard how we use Our treasure. And I'll be honest, I hate talking about the tithe in church because I, you know, as a pastor, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, of course, you're talking about the tithe. You know, there's, a, there's a bit of this thinking that, I don't know, that, that it's just this, this corrupt organization when the pastor talks about the tithe. Yeah, my, my job as a pastor is not to make you comfortable. I practice the tithe, and the tithe simply means 10%. That we would give God 10% of what he's given us. And it's interesting that the mindset that the tithe kind of pushes on us, because we think, 10%, like, that's a lot. But usually the thinking behind that mindset is, God, why do I have to give you 10%? And God's thinking, why do I have to give you 100%? You see the difference? In the first mindset, we think everything we have is ours. But the other mindset, we understand that everything we have has been given to us by God. Everything is a gift. In Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is there, the desires of your heart will, will also be. If you want your priorities and your desires to be aligned with God, put your treasure where he's asking you. If you want to keep first things first, put your treasure where he's asking you. And this is not just generosity. I know we have a very generous church here and that's awesome. But giving is in response to a need. Tithing is in response to God's generosity to you. It's the first tenth. And it's hard to tithe when you think that everything you have is yours, is your right. But as soon as you flip the mindset and you think everything I have has actually been gifted to me by God, then it's kind of like, I get to live on 90%? That's awesome. I know there are some of you that will be like, well, you know, the Old Testament and tithing and New Testament and, and you know, you, you, you try and kind of theologize your way out of the tithe. Uh, I understand it because I've done it. And I'll just say to you that you don't want to play that game because the New Testament has kind of, a, has kind of this understanding that the, the, the church gave everything. It was, like, it was like communism not gone bad. It was like they, they, they gave everything. I don't think we want to do that. So the tithe is in your, in your best interest. Everything we have is a gift from God, and, and God lets us. I mean, unless He's calling you to give more than that, that that's fine. But but use ten percent as a guideline. Look at your life, and some of you would say, "I'm not sure where we're going to get ten percent from." Mm-hmm. That's why it's a aligning principle, and then you're going to have to ask the question: What in my life do I have to rearrange and reorganize in order to prioritize it in this way? God gave us the tithe as a safeguard to our treasure. And when we show him that we're faithful with what he's given us, he's more inclined to give us more. God, if you can trust me with money, with wealth, with power, with responsibility, you can trust me with more. Because God will see that it's not a trap for you. You know, I think, I don't, God hasn't given me tons and tons of money, probably because I haven't shown to be totally faithful with it. And i got to learn how to be more faithful. I believe that almost all of us could easily live off 90%. I know there's probably some of you that, who that's, that's not a reality. You're not even having an income. You don't have a job. And, uh, and that breaks our heart. And as a community, we pray for you. But we also recognize that that's not the reality of every person in this room. Most of us could easily live off 90%. But it would require changes. In fact, it's usually harder to tie the more money you make, statistically. I remember when Lisa and I were bringing in 27,000 a year and we were fully tithing. And we lived off that. But as more money has come into the house, I wouldn't say that it's gotten easier to tithe. It's probably gotten more difficult. And then I look at my barns and I say, maybe I need less in my barns. The third thing that I think will be measured on, how I use my talents will be weighed. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because this is the topic uh, of starting point class three, which is today. If you haven't done starting point yet, you can jump in at any point in one, two, three. We recommend that you do class three before you do class four. But in class three, we talk about discovering your purpose. And we do talk a little bit about the, the, your time and your treasure, but we focus a lot on your talent, how God has made you, how he's wired you. God is going to weigh us on how we used what he gave us in terms of our talent. Your gift set, your talents, your spiritual gifts. How are you using it? Selfishly, for selfish gain, or are you actually using it in a way that you're seeking God first with what, how he's gifted you? I'm going to skip this passage. Great passage, Hebrews 12. It's talking about running a race. Uh, Actually, no. Are you guys okay if I talk about this passage? Okay. I'll move quickly through it. Uh, Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11, one of the best passages in Scripture. I love it. It, It's this passage about the heroes of faith, uh, people that stepped out in faith, pushed through fear, left the past behind, grabbed hold of the future, like all the things that we've been talking about, that's Hebrews 11, people that have done it. And then we get into Hebrews 12, and the writer says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, it's describing this amphitheater of all these heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11 that are sitting around cheering you on in this life. Like you're at the Olympic Games. This is the picture that's being painted. Heroes of the faith that did it before you, that put first things first, often at the expense of their lives. They're cheering you on. And therefore, since we're surrounded by this huge crowd of witnesses that are cheering us on to, light, to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set out for us. And often I've focused on, you know, the sin in my life I've got to clean up so that I can be totally available to God, which is totally true. But there's a whole bunch of sand in my life that isn't necessarily sin that is tangling me up and not actually allowing me to run the race that God's called me to run. It's not just about sin management, it's about just life management, prioritization. You know, when I, when I was younger, I, I, I ran track, I remember in junior high before I realized that running with a goal in mind is way more fun than just running. Um, but before I enjoyed ru- running with a basketball in my hand, I just ran. I ran to school, I ran everywhere, and uh, I often missed the bus so I had to run to school, but that was good training for me. And I, I ran long distance running. And when I was in junior high, I, uh, one junior high year, I broke three provincial records in long distance running. And, uh, and I felt awesome about myself. And I remember the next year coming in full of pride, like, man, this is, like, I'm going to kill it. Uh, and, uh, and I remember guzzling a Coke before I ran it. Like, I didn't even, I was like, I don't care. i guzzle a Coke. I'm thirsty. I don't like water. Um, and I remember even hearing kids like talking about. Uh, I, I remember hearing people whispering about me, and I was like, talking "Oh, you know, he's the guy who won last." I, I can remember that sitting there before we ran, and and I was just like puffing up with pride, and I, down to coke, and I ran, and I ran out of gas about halfway through, and I think I finished like sixth or seventh or something, and I was just deflated. But I think some of us live life with that lazy, faire fair kind of attitude. We live off past successes. You probably had a time in your life where you prioritized well, where you were living the life that you felt like God was calling you to live. But then it might have been a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Get over it. God's calling you to live a life that honors Him today. Not to live in past successes. Not to waste your time in in the sand, popping a Coca-Cola you got a crowd of witnesses around you cheering you on to live the life of faith with urgency. God gave us community to safeguard how we use our talent. That was the final safeguard. He's gifted you in such a way to run the race with purpose. that's going to be impactful. But some of you guys are running in isolation. God's put you in a church, in a community to serve other people. And he's going to measure you on how you use your talent to glorify him and bless others. So this is what starting point's about. Uh, And so I would encourage you, if you haven't done starting point yet, to to check it out on Sundays after church. Um, Chris highlighted hearing God. You know, I think this is a major part of this because as we live in tune with God and how he's speaking to us day in and day out, we can start to live in a way that prioritizes the thing that he he wants to prioritize in our lives. Learning to hear God's voice is critical and foundational to everything we do here at SunWest. And that's on February 10th. The last word in the message to Belshazzar is parson, which means divided. Belshazzar had his kingdom divided up and given to his enemies. He had given away his legacy because he didn't live his life with an eternal perspective, He didn't realize that everything he had was given to him for a reason. How we prioritize our lives will determine our legacy. The first week I talked about your funeral. What are people going to say at your funeral? Are they going to talk about the sand? Are they going to talk about the little rocks? Or are they going to talk about the big rocks? We're going to be remembered for our big rocks. We're going to be weighed according to our big rocks. The, the ripple effect that you will have that outlasts your life 50 years, 100 years, 200 years from now will be determined by how you prioritize the big rocks in your life. I'm going to show you a chart that I use with our staff. and They're, they're probably so tired of me talking about this chart. But I, I use this for everything. And, but I, I give it to you and I would encourage you to use it as a way... To do a bit of a, a survey on your life. How are you doing? Are you living with the urgency that God's called you to live? If you had 30 days to live, how would you rearrange these quadrants? In, the, in quadrant number one, we have important but urgent things. We usually attend to these things because they're, they're urgent. You have to put food on the table. You usually don't forget about that one. It's important and it's urgent. You have to pay the bills. Important and Urgent. Quadrant number two, we have important and not urgent things. Come back to that in a second. Quadrant number three, urgent but not important things. Things that require your attention, that want your attention, that are asking for your attention, everything's urgent. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, it's so easy for me to live in quadrant three. I I could spend all of my time in quadrant three. Urgent things that are always requiring my attention. But at the end of the day, are those the most important thing that God's actually asking me to invest my life into? And number four, not urgent and not important. And I think we would be totally surprised at how much of our life we live that is in quadrant four. I think many of us live in quadrant one, because we have to. Quadrant three and quadrant four. But I think very few of us spend time in quadrant three. Or quadrant two, sorry. And quadrant two is your legacy. Everything that you will be weighed on in this life, everything that you actually care about, I don't even know you, but I, but I, but I know this. Everything you care about is probably in quadrant two. But ironically, it's the place in your life that you spend the least amount of time. Your marriage is in quadrant two. Your kids are in quadrant two. Your dreams and your hopes are in quadrant two. The reason that God put you on this earth is in quadrant two. And and, and we can put it off. It's not urgent. It's not urgent. It's not urgent. Two years go by. Five years go by. Ten years go by. Twenty years go by. And you're like, I just spent my life wasting it on sand? Wasting on things that were urgent, but at the end of the day didn't make a lasting eternal difference? I'm going to invite you to stand with me in response if you're able and this last song that the band's going to lead us in and then Mary Mary will close the service and there will be prayer teams available after the service is about the call that God has on our lives to go further, to go higher, to go deeper to not be okay with the status quo can I encourage you to take that quadrant this week and actually look at your week. Go back and look at your calendar or maybe start tracking your calendar from this point forward and saying, how much time am I spending in each of these four areas? How am I, am I giving Sabbath time to God? Am I safeguarding my life with the tithe? Am I using my gifts to serve other people? Because those are things that God is inviting you to to make sure that you live your life in quadrant two. To keep the first things first. So Jesus, we thank you, first of all, that we get the ultimate mulligan. We thank you for the, your, your death and resurrection, that we can have hope, that we can have forgiveness, that we can have grace, that we don't need to beat ourselves up and for how we've mismanaged and misstewarded the things in our life that you've given us in the past. But Lord, you continually call us to new life. Lord, I pray for those that feel apathetic in this room this morning, that you would light a fire in their heart, that you would light a dream and a vision in their heart. Lord, that you would, that they would write down a a calling statement, a vision statement for themselves, for their family, for their friends, for their work, for their vocation, and they wouldn't settle for less than what you've called them to. Lord, I pray that they would receive the grace and forgiveness that you have freely given us, but also the faith and the courage that you also give us to step into the future and to live the life that you're calling each and every one of us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.